We'll need our Bibles open to Revelation 4, and we'll need our pen or pencil and a worksheet before us because we've got lots to cover. <clears throat> Sincerely hope everybody's doing well and we're grateful that you're here. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer. <clears throat> oh, Holy Father, we pray that you would open up our hearts and eyes as we open up your word. Oh Lord, we feel so blessed and honored that we can look into your mind and we can learn more about you. And Father, we can we can take these things and, and examine ourselves. We're grateful, Father, for the land in which we live. We pray, Father, that we might ever strive to be a free people so that we can assemble freely. Oh Lord, we're thankful that we can serve no matter where we're at. Father, we, we long to be with you in heaven. Thank you for forgiveness through Jesus and his blood. Thank you for the church. Bless all who might not be feeling well at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. Revelation 4, we're going to look at John as our tour guide. If you ever go into a museum or take a tour through anything, the tour guide makes all the difference. If he or she is excited about what they are showing you and are very knowledgeable about it, then you're going to have a decent experience, but if they're just there to get a paycheck, then your experience is not going to be so well. John is a, the best tour guide to take us on a journey to the throne of God. He is the best tour guide because he is inspired. Several times in our text we'll be reading that John is in the spirit. That means he is within God. He is God is with him. And God is showing him and us exactly what he wants us to to see. So this is a tour guide around the throne of God. So Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1, After this, John said, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place afterwards. Notice it says door. If you look at Ezekiel 1 verse 1, it's very similar. And again, these folks reading John's messages would be familiar with Ezekiel. And also familiar with doors. Doors. Think about all the doors that Christ has opened for us. We know, we read in Matthew chapter 16, 16 to 19, that Jesus said to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against her. And I'll give unto you the keys of the kingdom. Jesus, through Peter and the rest of the apostles, opened up the door to the church. If we consult such verses as uh, Colossians 4, 2 through 4, we see that Christ opens up doors of opportunities for us. He, he, in fact, he asks, that prayers would be made for him, that he would have doors open for the word of God, for the gospel. Acts fourteen twenty seven is similar. 
uh, to that, where they came back and reported uh, to the church at Antioch how a door of faith had been opened up to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 9 and 10, uh, speaks, Paul speaks of a wide and effectual door that was opened up for him there at Ephesus. Christ opens up the door to the church. He opens up doors of opportunity. And you see here, he opens up the door of heaven. And part of what is revealed to John is a door to the future. A door to the future. He'll be slowly revealing different things that will be coming up to the people in his day that will try to that will help them understand help them understand uh, why things are happening as they are and give them encouragement. But notice Christ opens up the door to heaven, the door to the future, the doors of opportunity, and the doors to the church. And so in response to this, people on earth ought to obey Christ, allow him to put them in the church, receive forgiveness, and then after you're in the church, you ought to serve Christ, look for doors of opportunity, doors open for the word of God. And then as we move along, who holds the future in their hands? Christ. Who's going to bring us to heaven, take us to heaven? Christ. And so it kind of sums up what the Christian life is all about. Obey, serve, and trust. Obey, serve, and trust. Because Christ opens up doors. So take that and work on it. So John sees a door standing open to heaven. Access. Christ is all about access, isn't he? Access. You remember when, who was it that had a dream and saw angels ascending and descending? Jacob. And Christ said in John 1, the end of John 1, to Nathaniel, that you'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Okay. That's just access. Christ is showing that he brought down to us the things of God and we have the opportunity through him to get to get home to God. Okay. So Revelation 4 verse 1 we see a door standing open. Also notice here in Revelation 4 and verse 2 John's taking us on this tour. He says the voice said or John says at once I was in the spirit And behold, a a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So this is what John is seeing. He's seeing the throne. If you could just picture picture yourself in a space capsule. And and now you've been shot up into space. And you're you're going to tour this planet. You're not touring a planet through, John. You're touring the throne of God. And you're able just to see what's there. This is what's happening in Revelation 4. John says, I see the throne of God. Why is this important to those who were receiving such uh, fierce persecution in those days? They needed to know that regardless of what was happening on the outside, in the physical world, God was still on his throne. God is still in charge. And it's still that way today. Look in your Bibles with me to Psalm number 47 right quick. 
Psalm 47. I ask you to flip fast because we have lots to cover. But we let the Bible explain the Bible. That's the safest route. And we're going to try to do that with some of these readings in Revelation. Psalm 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations. See that? Psalm 47, verse 8. God sits on His holy throne. Now quickly run with me to the minor prophet Habakkuk. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk, I think is right in there somewhere. Now Habakkuk was dealing with a couple things. Assyria had taken off some of God's people into captivity. Now Babylon was threatening to take more, uh, this time Judah, into captivity. He was having a hard time, God, using these heathen people to punish his own people. And so he didn't understand everything that was going on. But notice Habakkuk 2, verse 20. What does that say? Habakkuk 2, verse 20. What does that say? Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. That was important to Habakkuk, even though he didn't understand all that God was doing. But this made a difference in Habakkuk's thinking and in his life. Because look over to chapter 3, Habakkuk, and notice what, what he says, verse 17. Habakkuk three seventeen. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Produce of the, even if the produce of the olive tree fails, and the fields do not yield any food, if the flock be cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He will be my strength. How could he say that? Because he knew the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. If we're going to say we're going to respect God, we've got to trust God. Okay, there's no respect without trust. And there's no trust without respect. We must fully trust Him. And so that's part of why John is being shown the throne of God in Revelation and revealing that to his uh, hearers and to his audience is because uh, this would mean a lot to them to be, able, to be reassured okay, and, and be familiar. Identification. We remember reading that from Isaiah and Ezekiel, that they saw the throne of God. Now John's seeing. So, so things are still okay, even though uh, we're, we're seeing some rough times. All right. So, a throne is set in heaven. Now notice a reading here from Revelation 4 and verse 3. And he who sat there on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay. So we're introduced into to the majest, majestic nature of God. All right. Now run back with me again to Psalms. Psalm 104 this time. Okay. Psalm 104. All right. Psalm 104. If you're at home, do you have your Bible out? Okay. We're going to need you to focus and, and, and work hard with us as well. Psalm 104, beginning in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
Oh Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. You know, see, when you, when you see God, you really can't see God. You see the majesty around Him. Can you imagine what the throne of God is going to look like? John's doing his best. He's using the most precious stones known to mankind to try to explain it. But this is not really good enough because you really have no words to describe the throne of God. But you do see the majestic, majestic nature of the Lord here. From Revelation 4 and verse 3, we're on this tour guide, and what does he see? He sees a throne, and then he sees just sparkle, majestic, emeralds, precious stones. That's the best he can do uh, in his explanation uh, of it. Okay. Now another reference you might want to write down is 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, but we won't turn over there just for the sake of time. But just thinking about the the great nature of God. Um, he dwells in light that no man can, can dwell into. Uh, he just, he's almost unapproachable in, a, in the sense of how wonderful and grand He really is. Okay. But notice also here that around the throne was a rainbow. So what do you think about when you think about a rainbow? Yeah, the promise of God to who? To Noah. Genesis chapter what? Yep, keep counting, Mike. Nine, that's right. right. Genesis chapter nine. So I'll be making your way back there for just a minute. It's going to be important for us to run back there. Genesis nine. But think about it. What does the rainbow signify? Well, first it signifies a combination of judgment from God and mercy from God. Judgment upon those who would not listen to God, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 8 and 9. And so those willing to submit to God, basically Noah and his family, they received mercy. Okay. And they found themselves in a brand new world. But those who would not receive the word of God and the warnings from God, then they receive judgment. Okay. So, the same thing in heaven. What is the rainbow to signify? It is to signify that heaven will be a place of both judgment and mercy. Don't begin to think that when we get to heaven, somehow you got yourself there. That will never be true. It will be because of God's tremendous love and mercy. But at the same time, if one does not submit the Lord's will under New Testament times, then, then he will receive judgment. But in addition to judgment and mercy being combined there at the throne, there's also the promises of God. And we look at Genesis 9 here. Notice what God said to Noah beginning in verse 8. Are you with me? Genesis 9 verse 8. God said to Noah... And to his sons, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. For it is, it is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
God said, this is the sign of the covenant. Notice how he, how he repeats himself. Okay? And so, um, those of us who try to teach, and, and little ones, when your parents repeat themselves, they're not, they're not senile, they're just following God. God is emphasizing this. Okay? This is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that's with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. See that? Verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that's between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And again and again, he says, I'm going to remember this everlasting covenant. We still see the bow in the cloud. We see the bow at the throne of God. That establishes for us, God will keep his promises. Has God promised that he'll take care of us? He has. Has he promised that he'll be with us as we do his will? He has. He has. Do we need to worry if we're doing his will, working in his behalf? Do we have to worry about our everyday needs? We don't. We don't. The future is bright ahead, both on earth and after earth, for those who do his will. Will God keep his promises? Does he have the ability to keep his promises? Has he promised that he's going to keep his promises? How often does he say covenant here in Genesis chapter 9? Covenant means an established agreement. So the rainbow at the throne of God. So we're racing now back to Revelation 4. That's verse number uh, 3. And we go on to... Verse number 4. Around the throne. So around the throne is a rainbow. Verse 4 again says around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Okay. So John continues to give us little clues of what we're talking about. When he says white garments and crowns, we've got to think about faithful people, right? Revelation 7 verse 14 is a parallel passage here. Because who are these who are at the throne? These are those who have, who, have, who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and have made their garments white. Okay. Who are these who have a crown on their head? Well, didn't Paul say something about a crown in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8? Okay. I fought the good fight, I kept the faith. Henceforth there was laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. So you have these 24 thrones and 24 what they call elders here. And since, um, since in heaven there will be the faithful of Old Testament times and faithful of New Testament times, I think that's what this represents. Okay. There were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament. Both very, very uh, significant ideals. The 12 tribes... Very significant in the Old Testament. Twelve apostles, very significant in the New Testament. And so, why can't this represent all the faithful of the Old Testament times and all the faithful of New Testament times? What are they doing? They're there at the throne of God and they're paying homage, they're worshiping the Father, the one uh, who is sitting on the throne. So you see that? Revelation 4 and verse number 4. Alright? Notice... The next statement here, Revelation 5 and verse 5. From the throne, so around the throne's a rainbow, around the throne are these 24 thrones, 24 elders, 
and they're sitting there and they're worshiping, praising God. And then he says, from the throne comes what? Okay. Flashes of lightning here, the ESV says, and rumblings and rumblings of thunder before the throne. Okay. So, what could this represent? Because remember, we talked last week, when John opens up this letter, he said, I'm going to be signifying some things to you. This is not going to be literal language, most of all, things that, things that represent something else. Physical things that represent spiritual truth. So I wonder what these lightnings and thunders could represent. Well, it could represent the power and presence of God himself. Okay. So why would we say that? Well, if you go back to when the people came to the Sinai wilderness and were close to Mount Sinai, God wanted to make himself known, not just to Moses on top of the mountain, but also he wanted the people to experience his presence as well. But they couldn't go up the mountain. In fact... They, there was a little edge there where they could not cross. We talk about holy ground. We spoke a little bit about holy ground uh, Sunday night. This was definitely, you don't cross a certain spot here at the mountain or else, um, you know, you're going to be struck down. So if you look at verse 9 of Exodus 19, God said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you uh, forever. And so he says to people, you know, on the third day here, the third morning, I'm going to, going to come to Moses in the, in the cloud. Until then, I want you washing your garments. I want you sanctifying, concentrating yourself, and be ready. Okay. So verse 16, Exodus 19, 16, notice this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Okay. So most likely here around the throne we hear, hear this thunder and the voice of a trumpet and the lightning's taking place. This, this would remind us and everybody who's a Christian of the great presence and power of God. Don't you want to be in heaven? Don't you want to experience the presence of God like you never have before? You know, 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says, Brethren, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him even as he is. Okay. So there's, there's a great sense in which we enjoy the presence of God now, but we ain't seen nothing yet. Because that throne is going to be something else. Okay. We've already been introduced to the radiance, the majesty of God, but now add to that all these thunderings and lightnings and this voice of a trumpet. And so, that's what John is seeing, and he's doing his best to explain that to us. Okay, And uh, he's just having to use physical things to describe spiritual matters. So, we're not getting the full picture, but we're getting, a, an, we're getting an idea. So, going back here to Revelation 4 and verse 5, we continue to read that uh, before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We learned last week when, when John says seven spirits, he's basically meaning the Holy Spirit. Revelation 1 verse 4. Revelation 1 verse 4 talks about uh, God the Father, 
who, who uh, was and is, or is and was and is to come, and then Jesus Christ. But then the seven spirits, most likely because of the number seven, refers to perfection and complete completion. A seven spirit shall be the Holy Spirit himself. And this makes a lot of sense because he says you've got seven lamps, seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit's main role is revealing a truth. Truth is often um, signified by light. Okay, By light. Spiritual light would be divine truth. So we don't make these things up. Run back to 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Notice Paul's words about this very thing. I love this little, this little um, statement. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, talking about unbelievers, he said, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, what God wants us to see is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Keep reading. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as his servants. If we proclaim Christ as anything else but a servant, then we get in the way of people seeing the light of God. We must remain slaves for Christ. Then verse 6 is it. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. For God who said... Let there be light. Let there be light shine out of the darkness. We know he said that at creation. So God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, light, spiritual light, comes from the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the gospel. Okay. So it makes a great deal of sense to Christians when we look at the throne of God and we see that from the throne are these seven lamps from the, set, from the Spirit of God Himself. What's going to get us to heaven? What's going to guide us to heaven? It's going to be the Word of God that was revealed by the Holy Spirit of God Himself in the Scripture. Right. The book of Revelation is not about a lot of unfamiliar things. It's about taking that which is familiar and putting it together with what John is saying. John would not come to his audience and say a bunch, give them a bunch of mysteries that they couldn't, that, that would not be uh, identifiable, identifiable for them. Okay, so 2 Corinthians uh, 4 and verse 5, speaking, speaking of these seven torches, and then look at verse 6. Okay, he says, also before the throne... So around the throne, rainbow, around the throne, these 24 thrones. From the throne, these lightnings and thunders. From the throne, these seven torches. Okay. And then before the throne is this sea of glass. This sea of glass. And when you think of sea, you can think of victory. Why would we think of victory and, and a sea? Sea. Yeah, the Red Sea, Exodus chapters 13 and 14. God divided that water. It was like a baptism, in a sense, for those Israelites to walk through on dry ground. It was a tremendous victory over Pharaoh and his cohorts. 
And so here is a sea of glass. When we get to heaven, we will be victorious. Until we get to heaven, we're not completely victorious. We must remain faithful. But God is going to grant us that victory and we'll be there. It could also be that this sea of glass is kind of separating the regular folks, like these, these, uh, these elders there who have the crowns and the white garments, from God himself. Because we, it's an amazing thing that we're going to even be there at the throne, but only God occupies the main part of the throne. But nonetheless, there you have this... Um, the sea of glass. Now, can you imagine all the sparkling nature of all of this? Can you imagine the brightness of this? You've already got a lot of brightness, but then you're gonna, it's going to be reflected on a, on a sea of glass. It's just an amazing thought, amazing thought that John is sharing with us. So, and then from verses uh, 6, um, what, is your sheet, what does your sheet say here? Flashes of lightning See a glass. Yeah, four creatures worshiping about verses 6 through 11. Let's see what we can find out about these creatures. They were like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle. Is that right? A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Okay, and they got wings or covered with wings. Most likely these are angelic creatures, angels worshiping before God. Notice uh, concerning them that um, they are serving God and worshiping Him night and day. Verse number 8 there. And what are they saying according to verse number 8? What are they saying as they worship? Okay, holy, 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 and remember that's exactly a a uh, reference or exactly similar to Isaiah's remarks. He saw something very similar in Isaiah six, one through seven. He saw something very, very similar, and said the very, very same thing. What else are you going to say if you're at the throne of God? Okay. What will we be saying if we're in heaven? Holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. So these living creatures gave glory, verse 9, and honor and thanks unto him who is seated on the throne who lives uh, forever and ever. And notice a couple things here. Verse 11 brings out the Bible doctrine of creation. Notice, Notice the word worthy in verse 11. Why is God worthy of our worship? Why is he worthy to receive glory, honor, and power? For he created all things, verse 11, and by your will they existed and were created. Now the King James Version says, by your, for your pleasure or by your pleasure they exist and were created. Have you ever wondered why God created man in the first place? This sort of answers that, doesn't it? We are created for because of his will. I, I don't think it does too much damage to say for his pleasure. Okay. And a reference, a parallel reference there might be Isaiah 43 and verse 7, 
where it says we're created for his glory. For his glory. Now, if, that, if that's not enough for somebody, then that's just going to have to be not enough. But, but that's, that's, that's a pretty good stated purpose for what life is all about on earth. We're here for God's glory. We're here to do his will. We're here for his pleasure, not ours. For his pleasure, not ours. Created by him for him. Good, Keith. That's it. Created by him for him. Psalm 100 says, um, um, For it is he that made us and not we ourselves. Psalm 100 is a psalm of praise. And that's similar to this. He created us, not we ourselves. We're, We're made by him and for him. Notice that these uh, these creatures, I'm just calling these angels, um, they're worshiping. But then notice also, in addition to them, the 24 elders on their 24 thrones are worshiping. And notice according to verse 10, they are casting their crowns before the throne. Right. So, can you imagine those crowns? And this is not physical, but there's something we need to see here. They're taking the crowns off of their heads. And you can imagine how a crown would just slide right across the sea of glass, right toward the throne. Sliding right. Why are they doing that? Because they understand that all credit goes to the one on the throne. To him who is radiant, him who is majestic. The credit for us being here, the, the credit, all glory and honor and praise goes to him. I do not deserve this crown. We are casting our crowns before him because we're in such humble gratitude for being here in the first place. Casting crowns. Okay, so that pretty much covers uh, that worksheet there. Uh, I wish I could give you a better explanation of these four living creatures and why they would be uh, lion, ox, uh, man, and eagle. Could be that... uh, might be a, a reference to the type of people that, that that God sends angels to serve, those who are young and strong like an eagle, those who are young and strong like a lion, those who are regular work, workmen who might work with an ox. And, and um, the angels exist to serve man. And so, nonetheless, let's jump over now to chapter 5. This is uh, a focus... This is a focus on the scroll, right? And so we we run over this really fast. Uh, the scene is John's there. You know, he's he's seeing this scene, okay? And so uh, one of the angels loudly proclaims, "Who is worthy to open up this book?" There's a, there's a scroll there, and there's seven seals. Okay? And evidently, it has a lot to do with what's coming up in the future. So no one in heaven, on earth, or under under the earth is able is found who can open that up. Okay, so it says here that John begins to weep loudly because no one is able to open up the scroll. But someone says, "Stop weeping, John, because there is someone," and that's kind of the gist of chapter five here in this scroll. So who is worthy? I want you to notice this word worthy in 
word worthy. Notice it in 4.11, having to do with the Father. Okay, notice it here now in 5.2, concerning the Son. Jump on down to 5.9, worthy are you, talking about the Son. Notice it in 5.12, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy means basically spiritual qualifications. Who has the spiritual qualifications to open up this scroll? Okay. Only one. Only one. In heaven, on earth, or under the earth, only one. Okay. Shame on me for having talked about how that Jesus is the only one and not using Revelation 5 as an illustration of that. Shame on me because I haven't done that near enough. Near enough. When we talk about John 14, 6, and Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except through me. A great illustration of that is right here, this scene in, in Revelation 5. Because Jesus is the only one. He's the only one who, who could provide salvation for man. He's the only one who could provide the sacrifice that man needed uh, on the cross. Okay. And he's the only one. He's the only one who could open up this book and show the future. Show the future. And so that's, that's a great relief to John here that there is someone who is, who is worthy. All right. Remember our song from Psalm 18, verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. We sing that with the young folks again and again and again. It's a great song. Great song. Psalm 18, 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy. Who has the spiritual qualifications worthy to be worshipped? Who, who, who can be worshipped? Well, the ones on the throne. Okay. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They are worthy of our worship. And only Jesus, you know, Acts 4 verse 12 says that no other name uh, under heaven uh, is, is, is available whereby a person can be saved. No other. Salvation is not found in any other prophet, any other person, any other place than in uh, Jesus Christ. So he is the one worthy. Now notice uh, from verse number 5, who is Christ and what has he done? Well, start with what he has done. Let's see if verse 5 reveals that. What does it say there in verse 5 that Jesus has done? According to verse 5. He's done what? Say it. What? Mm-hmm. Just um, Let me read mine. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. What does your Bible say? Prevailed. prevailed. Okay. So he has prevailed. That's what he's done. He's prevailed through, through his death, resurrection, ascension, through his life on earth. He has prevailed. He's conquered. Uh, compare that to Revelation 3. And um, Jesus said in Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered or overcame, prevailed, and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is the one who can open up 
the scroll because he has conquered. And now who is he? Well, he's the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and uh, he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we must run back. We just don't have a choice because this is a direct reference to Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Okay. So are you there already? Genesis 49. This is when Jacob is blessing his sons before he dies. If you look at verses 9 or 8, 9, and 10, talks, he gets to Judah. Of course, Jesus is going to come out from the tribe of Judah. Notice in verse uh, 9, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, what does scepter refer to? Verse 10, Genesis 49. What's a scepter? Uh, who would use a scepter? A king. king. So, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. In other words, the one coming out of Judah is going to have a scepter in a sense. He's going to be king. Okay. And so, um, that's what Revelation 5, verse 5 is referring to. Jesus is that lion. Lion represents authority. Jesus is the one with authority. He's the king. He's going to come out from Judah. A reference there in Revelation. Uh, Revelation. Hebrews 7, verse uh, 11 through 14. Wish we had time to explain all that. But it's explaining that the priesthood of Jesus is following after the order of Melchizedek. Okay. The old priesthood came through Aaron and, Aaron and the Levites. But where there is a change... Uh, priesthood there has to be also be a change of the law. The old law came forth from the Levites, but the new law comes forth from our new high priest, which is Jesus. Okay. And so uh, he is coming forth from Judah. So he's the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David. What does it mean, root? Root of David. Hmm? Lineage. So Jesus came from the lineage of David. That's very true. That's very true. Let me add this to your thoughts. Over in Revelation uh, 22, 16, Jesus is called the root and offspring of David. So let's come back here then in chapter 5 and think about root being a source. A source. Okay. The source. In other words, uh, like we read about Paul saying in 1 Timothy uh, 6, verse 10, the love of money is what? Root. root of all evil. Okay, Source of all evil. All evil. So when, G- when it says that Jesus is the root of David, Jesus, as divine as he is, as, as, as he is God, he's the source of all life. Okay. But also, Revelation twenty two sixteen says he's the offspring of David. So what you have pictured here is both the, the God side of Jesus and the human side of Jesus. He's the root of David, God, and he's the offspring of David, human. Okay. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, or as John adds in, in chapter 22, the root and offspring of David. So this is who Jesus is, Revelation 5 and verse number 5. 
And so all this would be very familiar to the early saints as they listened, as they said they identified with this. Yes, yep, yep, that, that, yep, that's all very uh, familiar to me. Okay. So, let's see, let's see. verse 6, um, let's go ahead and, and tackle verse 6 and then we'll, we'll kind of draw it to a close here. Let's see. Okay, uh, verse 6, you've got Jesus, the lamb, uh, standing there as slain, but he's standing. If, if he's a lamb that is slain, but standing, what does that say about Jesus? He overcame death. He, the resurrection. The resurrection. And remember at the end of chapter 1 we read last week, Jesus saying to John, I was dead. But now I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1, 17, 18. Jesus is a lamb, but he's standing. Okay, very important. He's both. He's the lamb that was slain, but he's a lamb that was standing. And he's still standing. And how thankful we are. How much, how important the resurrection of Jesus is to our faith cannot be overstated uh, at all. And so... The lamb, and, he, and then he has all these sevens here. What, what seven things does he have? Seven, seven horns. Horns, of course, referring to power. Seven eyes. Uh, he's perfect in power. He's perfect in vision. And then seven uh, spirits of God sent out. So he's in perfect unity with the Holy Spirit and uh, God the Father as well. Okay, we'll let that end our session tonight. I was trying to get through both chapters, as you can see, but uh, i tell you what, it encourages me. It's the reason I wanted to do some reading from the book of Revelation is for our encouragement. Revelation chapter 1, John sees a vision of Christ. We noticed that last week. Revelation 4, John sees the throne of God. Now, Revelation 5, he's introduced to this scroll that's going to begin to unfold some of the things that are important for those early saints to, to understand as, as the days uh, went by. So we'll do some reading next week, good Lord willing, in Revelation chapters 5 and 6. We'll finish up. Okay.